Good morning. Good morning. Um, I hope y'all had a great week. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time in review today, like I normally do. Um, but we're, our focus is going to be a little different today. So first off, if you need a copy of God's Word, if you ran out the door and you forgot it, just shoot your hand up. We'd love to bring you a copy. Anybody need one? All right, perfect. Okay, good job bringing your Bible today. Um, our focus, like I said, is going to be a little bit different today. Instead of a long review, I want to remind you of three important points from last week. Right? And that's just merely to set up today's text. Okay, so first, we remember chapter 8, Israel's demand of the king. Right? And, and second, they were warned. They said, this, this is going to be a bad deal for you, but they still chose the kings. And third, God instructed Samuel to give the Israelites what they demanded, and that as a judgment. Okay? So today, we're going to read chapter 9. And I know I usually ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, but today I want to do a little bit different. I want you to stay seated, okay? And uh, I, I want to read the chapter through. And I want you to follow in your Bibles or, or on the screen there. I'll try to remember to. I, I forgot the first one, the forward slides. But read along, and I, and I want you to enter into the text, okay? And what do I mean by that? I want you to, to listen for audio cues. I want you to uh, listen for visual cues. Imagine being in that area, right, in, in Israel. It's still there today, so some people have been there. If you don't know what Israel looks like, Google it, right? It's... Uh, Scrubby, it's uh, like scrub bushes and stuff like that. It's arid, it's dry. Um, I want you to imagine being in that area. I want you to imagine what things would have looked like, smelled like, and I want you to imagine what the people in our text are doing, right? This is a narrative, it's a story that's, that's meant to show us uh, what's going on there. So I want you to, to put yourself in there, okay? Are you ready? That's about what I got in the first service, too. I think I got two. There we go. Glory, hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. I can always count on Brandon. All right. Chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeor, the son of Becherath, the son of Ahia, the son of Benjamin, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among all the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants and arise and go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and he passed through the land of Salisha, but did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zoph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. He said to him, this is his servant speaking now, He said to him, Behold now, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there, and perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man for? The bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come and let us go see the seer. For he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was, and they went up the slope to the city, 
And they found the young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered him, them and said, he is, see, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he is coming to the city today. For the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore, go up, for you will find him at once. So they went up to the city. As they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go to the high place. Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people, Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate. Uh-huh. Oh, some of you, Tyler's got me covered. Thank you, Tyler. Then Saul, uh, let's see. Uh, then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not you and for all your father's household? Saul replied, Am I not a Benjaminite of the smallest of all the tribes of Israel? Am I family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you, concerning which I said to you, set it aside. Then the cook took up the lamb with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time. Since I said I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down, when they came down from the high place in the, into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof, and they arose early, and at daybreak Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now, that I may proclaim the word of God to you. Right. Lord, Teach us to live by prayer as well as by providence. For ourselves, for our souls, our bodies, our children, our families, our church. Give us a heart that listens to your will, so that we might live in prayer and honor you, being kept from evil both known and unknown. Amen. If you haven't read 1 Samuel yet, you might be a little confused right now, because in chapter 8, God said, give the Israelites a king. And here we are in chapter 9, and we're talking about a couple of inept donkey herders, right? What's going on there? For those of you that have read 1 Samuel, you understand that this is the beginning of an amazing story. A story that, as my wife mentioned uh, earlier this week, starts with a donkey and ends with a donkey, right? I'll explain that later. She was right on the money with that statement. To understand, though, we need to look at our text. Right, so verse 1, we see there's a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. We get a, a four-person genealogy. It's kind of like what we got in the first chapter of Samuel, right, with 
Elkanah, and we get that four-person genealogy. Genealogies can be very important in the Bible. Like when we look at the genealogy of Christ, right? When you look at how it goes back through Joseph and how it goes back through Mary. Someday I'll explain that to you. There, there's some really crazy stuff in there, right? That, that there's a blood curse and things shouldn't have worked out the way it did, but God worked it out. And it, it's, it's insane. It, it, it's awesome, right? right? I don't have time for that today. We'll get to that some other day, right? But this genealogy is just a genealogy, right? <laughs> it, it's mentioned in a couple other places, um, but basically it's just to let you know who's the son of who. Um, we see right away it's another father-son sto uh, father story, right? We saw Elkanah and Samuel. We saw Eli and his two knuckleheads. We saw Samuel and his two knuckleheads. And now we see Kish and what we hope is not a knucklehead, right? And a Benjaminite strikes a bell with you. Good job. You've been listening, right? Because we talked about the Benjaminites several Sundays back. They're in the last chapter of Judges. There's a horrible thing that goes on. And all of Israel gathers to fight the Benjaminites. And there's a civil war. And they're wiped out almost to, to the man. There's only 600 men left in the tribe of Benjamin, right? So you know where the boy is from, but who is this boy? Look at verse 2. He, he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. Right? We don't say that as much anymore, but choice right? and handsome man. There was not a, a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Uh, historians uh, estimate Saul's height to be about seven feet. Right, because if you go from the shoulders up to the top, the average height for the person living in those days is about seven feet tall. Now, to put this in reference for you, Shaq is seven foot one. You know who Shaq is? That's almost as tall as, or Saul was almost as tall as Shaq. Right? He's a big guy. Right? And he was handsome. He was good looking. He was a choice. Right? The interesting thing though is Saul is the only Israelite in the Old Testament who has his height mentioned. The only other time that height is mentioned in the Old Testament is in reference to Israel's enemies. That's what we in the business like to call foreshadowing, though. Okay? If we look at this, we see that God is fulfilling exactly what the people wanted. Right? You remember in, in chapter 8, they're like, give us a king to, to, to judge us like all the other nations. Right? We want him to go out in front of us in battle. Right? If Brentwood Bible Fellowship were to go out in battle, we want a big guy out there, right? We, we pick Brent, he's nice and tall, or, or maybe Shane, you know? We want somebody, they look at him and they're like, I don't want to mess with that guy. Right? That, that's, that's what we think. Right? So they, they, they've got this, uh, if you've ever seen Beauty of the Beast, he's Gaston, right? He's the big guy, Gaston. And, and that's exactly what the people think. But again, remember, when Samuel goes to pick David as king, when the older brother of David walks through the door, he's a big guy. And Samuel says, ah, that's, that's probably who God wants. And David's like, no, no, no. I look at the heart. Not, not the exterior. On with the story, right? The donkeys of Kish. They lose the donkeys. It's not uncommon. They, they kind of let them free range so they would wander about. And the donkeys wandered off. So Saul sends, or Kish sends Saul out to go get him with a servant. And they travel here, there, and everywhere throughout Israel. And they can't find them. We get through verses 3 and 4 there. And, and as I mentioned before, um, chapter 8 ends with God granting the Israelites the request for a king. So you might be asking yourself, what in the world are we doing talking about donkeys? 
Or maybe even more pointedly, what in the world do donkeys have to do with me? Anybody ever seen a donkey lately? I haven't. Right? The answer I want to give you is, is a verse. It's Romans 15.4. Right? Paul has just quoted Psalm 69.9. He's talking about Jesus. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Right? He's talking about Jesus. And then he gives us Romans 15.4 and he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Well, what was earlier than Paul? Old Testament, right? They didn't have the New Testament yet, so he's talking about the Old Testament. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Amen. I mentioned before that when we study the Old Testament, we shouldn't seek to make every little story about us and every little prophecy about us personally, right? That what we should do is, is look at the passage in its historical context and then look at what the passage shows us about God. Uh, my family and I watched uh, the other night uh, a documentary on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You don't know who that was. He was a pastor during World War II. And uh, during the, the rise of the Nazis and, and, and whatnot, he, the church actually capitulated to the Nazis. And, and so Bonhoeffer and several others uh, actually started their own church. And, and they separated themselves from the Nazis. And they uh, did espionage for the Allies, and they even there was there was some attempts at assassination uh, of Hitler. Uh, but he started a seminary when that happened, and they had one of his previous students on there, and she was really old by then, because it was like 1990. And um, we watched it, and she said uh, the one thing that Bonhoeffer drilled into them was that when you are reading the Bible, God is speaking to you. God is speaking. And there's so much truth in that because we know that we talk to God through prayer, right? When we want to talk to God, we pray. God talks back to us through his word. Which begs the question, if we aren't spending time reading scripture, how are we listening to God? How are we as Christians being taught and directed and even encouraged if we aren't listening? Back to when we're reading the Old Testament. When we read the Old Testament, we're looking at things like God's character, his holiness, how he deals with his people. And of course, we're looking at it backwards through the lens of Christ. And Paul is telling us we should take encouragement and training from these things. So if we look back at our passage today, what do we see? I mean, it looks like an everyday story from 1000 BC about a knucklehead donkey rancher and a servant, right? But hold on. When we read this, we have to pause and we have to ask ourselves, why is this here? And if you stop for a bit and do a little reflection, you begin to see something. Something that, that people that like to use big words call providence, right? It's great to say, but what's providence? Webster tells us, for now, until they change it, <laughs> providence means the protective care of God or of nature as a spiritual power. Now, as Christians, we understand that Mother Nature or Gaia or magic crystals aren't watching over us, right? But God is. Amen. Our God is. Because our God is, uh, forgive me, I'm going to use another big word here, sovereign, right? Sovereign meaning God created everything. He has power over everything. Right. And he controls everything. Job 38 
starting in verse 12, God is describing his power over creation. And he says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? God is powerful and mighty. And he controls the cosmos and the sun and the earth and the tides and the wind and even the steps of men and women. Do we think about this as we go about our lives? We tend to most often think about it when a large event happens, right? When somebody gets married, when somebody dies, when a baby's born, when your children go off to college, when you start getting older and, and you, you start having pain and things you didn't even know existed on your body, right? But what about the little things in life? Is this something on our mind on a Tuesday morning on your way to work? You're going to go there, you're going to work for several hours, you're going to eat lunch, drink some coffee, talk to some people, drive home, eat dinner, go to bed, get up, do it all over again. Or maybe you stay home and, and you're with the kids and you get them out of bed, you feed them breakfast, you take them where they need to go, you feed them lunch, you take them where they need to go, you feed them dinner, you take them where they need to go, you go to bed and you get up and you do it all over again. This passage here does what Paul said it did. It gives us encouragement. It shows us that, yes, we know that God is with us when big life events happen, but he's there in the day-to-day, -to -day too. Have you ever had a day where you look back as you head to bed and you're like, what happened today? I don't Like, I feel like I just got out of bed and I'm heading right back to bed again. Or maybe you've had, like, a series of days that just blur into one another. It's like July 4th, and then it's like, Merry Christmas. <laughs> what happened in between there? passage shows us what is explained in Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Amen. As we go through life, as we enter into the so-called rat race, we can take encouragement from our passage today that there is an almighty God controlling the mundane daily details of our lives for his plan and our good. There is encouragement in knowing that God knows where you are and what is happening to you, and in that, he is shaping you in every moment of every day. It's a lot to get from the first four verses, right? Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. We get to, to verse 5. We come into the land of Zuth, and, and Saul says, let's, let's return. My dad's going to be worried about us. And the servant says, no, 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 no. Let's go to the man of God. And you look at those verses, and, and you can't help but notice a few things about the future king of Israel, right? First, we mentioned earlier that he looked for donkeys all over half of Israel. Right? He went there, didn't find them. Went there, didn't find them. Went there, didn't find them. That leads us to believe that he isn't really that great of a shepherd, is he? Which is in stark contrast to the, the patriarchs, right? Like Moses and Jacob and, 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 and Abraham. They were, they were awesome shepherds. They had huge flocks. Right? And they, and they shepherded their people as well. Not Saul. Saul can't even find a couple donkeys in the desert. Second, we see here that Saul wanted to give up and call it quits, right? Oh, my dad will get more worried about us than a donkey. They've been gone for three days. I'm sorry, but they didn't have cars back then. It took you three days to go to the grocery store, right? Then three days he's been gone, and he says, we, we need to get back. And, and here's this unnamed servant, this little unnamed servant that says, wait, 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 wait. We need to keep going. We need to keep going. It's the servant that says, keep going, not the And finally, we see Saul's complete 
complete lack of dependence on God for help in his daily life, right? He's ready to pack up and head home, and he hasn't even thought to consult with God yet. Contrast that with the servant statement at the end of verse 8 there. He says, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Right? He will tell us our way. Verse 9 moves on, and it gives us a little commentary on the word seer, right? It makes us think maybe it was written a little bit later. They used to say seer. Now we call it prophet, right? They don't want you to get confused. They're not going to a fortune teller or a witch or anything like that. It's they're going to the prophet. And so Saul says, he said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they go into the city, and as they're going in, they're, they're walking up to the city, and, and here come a flock of, of girls to, to get water. Probably means it was toward the evening. That's when they would go out and draw the water. Now remember what I said about Saul, right? He was short and tall, tall and dark and handsome, right? And he comes walking up, and here come these girls out of the city. <laughs> There's Saul, big Saul. They said, yeah, he's right there. Keep going, keep going. Go to the city. Go to the city. So he goes up to the city. And they come in, and behold, Samuel's coming out to them. And we get this, we get this little thing here. Now, when we study the, the New Testament, we look for patterns. That's why in seminary you study Greek, right? Because you're, you're looking for uh, certain words, uh, the way they're used, that highlight the passage. In the Old Testament, we look for repetition. In the Old Testament, when you see something repeated over and over and over again, that's like using a big exclamation mark. Right? So read uh, verses 16 and 17. Uh, this is uh, the Lord revealing to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people, Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. God doesn't forget his people. Amen. Then we get this strange little interaction. I hate to use so many movie references, but Saul kind of reminds me of Kronk from the Ember's New Groove, right? If you've seen that, he's this tall big muscular guy, but he's dumb as a bag of bricks, right? And, and Saul comes walking up to Samuel. Now, let's think about this for a second. Samuel, the most important man in Israel. He went on a, a traveling circuit all around Israel, judging, and people would come to him, and, and he would tell them what the Lord said, and probably the most famous person in Israel at this time, and Saul walks up to him and says, uh, hey, old guy, you know what a seer is? <laughs> Are you joking? It's Samuel. That's Samuel right there. I say it's funny because it's funny, but it's tragic. This is the future king of Israel, and he doesn't even know the most famous man of God. If he doesn't know him, do you think he knows the little guy back in his hometown? Reminding me of the warnings of the Israelites. Give us a king to judge us like the nations around us, right? Samuel says, forget about your donkeys. They're already found. Don't worry about that. And he says this little thing. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Who does Israel desire the most? 
is it not you and your father's household? Uh, this surely would have confused Saul, right? He's, Benjamin, I've already talked about that. They got whittled down to 600 men. It really was the smallest. He wasn't just being humble. He was being honest. It was the smallest tribe in Israel. And apparently, in that tribe, he was the smallest family in that tribe. So I'm sure Saul was wondering, what in the world is this guy talking about? Samuel took Saul and his servant, and he brought him to a hall, and, and they're going to have dinner with him, and he places them at the head of the table, right? And, and you didn't just do this casually, right? This is, this is at a time well before contracts, well before you know, written things, we have to sign 15 different places and leave here, here, here. This was something very significant. When you put somebody at the head of a table, especially with the 30 men were probably leaders from around the area, when you put them at the head of the table, you were saying, this man has authority. So he places them at the head of the table. And then we see in verse 23, bring the portion that I gave you, concerning which I said, set it aside. And the cook brings it out, and Samuel says, here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time. He's talking about me, but he's talking about something else too. Right? It's been appointed to you. It's been given to you for the appointed time. That means that God knew the Israelites were going to demand a king. And he knew all of this stuff was going to go on. And he knew that the donkeys were going to get lost. And he knew that Saul was terrible at finding donkeys. And he knew that he was going to wander all the way to where Samuel was. And he knew to tell Samuel, hey, put aside a leg of lamb the day before Saul shows up. And he knew at this appointed time that Saul was going to be made king. Have you ever had a, and it just so happened moment? Maybe not like Saul here. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been invited to a dinner and had a big old leg of lamb dumped in front of you, right? But have you ever had a point in your life where you weren't even thinking about something God was going to do. And, and then it just so happens that God places something in your path. Something that you can't ignore, that you have to deal with. If you're here today and you've placed your faith in Christ, you've had at least one moment like that. Right? We were all wandering around, dead in our sin and our trespasses, enemies to God. And it just so happens that someone starts talking to you about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit awakens your heart. And you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible's full of it just so happened moments, right? Moses, his mom saves him. She doesn't kill him like she's supposed to. Pharaoh said, kill all the boy babies. She doesn't kill him, but he gets older and she has to get rid of him. So she puts him in a basket and she puts him in the river. And it just so happened that Pharaoh's daughter was coming down to the river to bathe that day. And it just so happened that she took him into the palace. Right, to be her son. Think of Joseph. He's the king of it, just so happened, right? Joseph, his brothers despise him. He's got that code. He's bragging about how he's going to be in charge of all of them one day. So they throw him in a pit, and it just so happens. Some slave traders are wandering by, so they sell Joseph off to them. And it just so happens that they're going to Egypt. And it just so happens that Potiphar buys him. He becomes number one in Potiphar's house until Potiphar's wife accuses him of trying to get frisky with her. And so he gets thrown in prison and it just so happens 
who is the baker in Pharaoh. It just so happens that Pharaoh had a dream, and the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And it just so happens that Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in the world and saves Israel, brings them to Egypt where they can grow into a nation. It just so happens. It's almost like there's a cosmic force backing these events. Maybe it's the universe, as a picture likes to call it, or fate. My friends, this is God reaching down into his creation to fulfill his plans through a chance meeting or an offhand occurrence in our daily lives. Amen. Continuing our story to verse 25, they, they come down from the high place. Samuel and Saul talk a little bit. Uh, Samuel lets Saul sleep on the roof, which some of you are saying, wow, that's kind of rude. But no, actually, that was the best place to sleep, right? Because they didn't have air conditioners, so you got that nice breeze blowing across it. And he wakes up in the morning, and Samuel says, get out of bed. I need to go. And they head out to the edge of the city. And he says, get your servant going ahead of us, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. We're going to leave you on a, with a, a bit of a cliffhanger today. The good news is, if you really want to know how the story ends, you can read chapter 10 on your own this week. And I would encourage you to do so. But in looking at this passage, we've touched on quite a few things, right? Things like providence, and the sovereignty of God, which leads to uh, moments in our life that just so happen. But what should we take home with us today? What should we talk about around the lunch table or think about as we go about our week? And I'll tell you, I really struggled with what to say on this as I prepared this week. Because I really think that if we can grasp the reality of what we talked about today, it can change our relationships, our careers, our home life, and even our relationship with Christ. So I really wanted to make sure that what I said was direct and easily understood and not muddled. And I was expressing this concern to my wife yesterday, and she looked at me and said, well, you're preaching a sermon on the sovereignty of God, and if God is sovereign, you're going to say exactly what we believe here. <laughs> God blesses us with good wives, amen? Amen. God is sovereign. And he is in control. But that doesn't mean that we're robots or, or, or chess pieces being moved around mechanically on a chessboard. If that were the case, our love would be forced and not real. Like programming a, a computer to say, I love you. You can do that, but is that love? No. God does something entirely different. Because the simple fact of the matter is this. I could get up here and spout complete gobbledygook, and God could take that and use that to complete his mission within my life. Just as easily as John MacArthur got up here into this pulpit and let loose with the most biblically eloquent sermon ever, I would be absolutely accountable to God if I got up here and gave you a bunch of gobbledygook. But get this, God is not dependent on your, the eloquence of your humble preacher to accomplish his mission. Amen? Amen? And this is true for you as well. You see, this is the mystery of God's providence. God has told us from the beginning, from the garden, what to do to show our love for him. John 15, 14, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And God has shown us that he loves us. 
He talks about what he's going to do throughout the whole Old Testament, and then he does it in the New Testament. But he gives us the option to go our own way. He leaves the proverbial door open. And we choose what to do or not to do with Christ's love for us. Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. When I talk to people in my office or out and about, I, I talk to my family about life, I remind them that life is not made up of, of huge, amazing moments, right? Like when you rescue someone from a burning building or jump in front of a bullet to someone. Life is millions and billions of small decisions stacked one on top of the other. It's the daily grind. Life is do I wear the blue shirt or the red shirt? Do I drink coffee? Do I drink tea? Do I eat a donut? Do I eat oatmeal? And what this story gives us is a view of God who cares so much for each of us individually that he guides those steps. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things. All things. Amen. If you're like me, there are things in your past that haunt you. Maybe, maybe there's sin in your past, or maybe it's something that happened to you. That if we dwell on them, will immobilize us. They'll throw doubt on our walk with Christ. They'll, they'll paralyze us with feelings of unworthiness. Because no one who loves Jesus would ever have done that, right? But if we truly believe in a sovereign God, he knew about those things before he even created us. And he knew the steps that he would need to direct to turn our hearts back to him. And even to take those situations that were so horrible in the past and turn around and use them for good in the future. And the same comfort and encouragement we can feel about the past can free us as we think about the future as well. We look around this country and we watch society crumbling. We see Christian values, the, the very fabric that held this country together for so long and enabled it to overcome things like the, the horrors of slavery and racism and abuse. And we see that fabric coming apart in the seams. And we feel even more divided as a nation now than we ever have. Now all of a sudden where it used to be, we're Americans, now all we care about is the color of someone's skin. The amount of melanin that someone has in their skin is once again being used to judge people instead of the character of the heart. But none of this surprises God. God doesn't turn on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC and, and go, wait, what? I can't believe that. Did, did you see the 7-Eleven that got overrun in, in L.A. This, this last week? This world is falling apart. He continues, just like he has from the dawn of time, guiding, leading, empowering his saints to go forth and make disciples of all nations. Do you know how many times the world has thought that it was about to snuff out Christianity? I mentioned that Allison commented on today's passages, a story that starts with a donkey and ends with a donkey. 
You see, because when God makes a promise, he keeps it. In Genesis 3.15, God has already cursed the serpent that Satan used when he was tempting Eve. And now he turns his attention fully on Satan. And he's speaking about the same Jesus that was on the donkey that rode into Jerusalem. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And all those thousands of years later, that's exactly what God did. Among all the schemes of man and Satan, God wove his thin red line all the way through the Old Testament, right up into Jerusalem, where Jesus would die for our sins be bodily resurrected on the third day and ascend into heaven. Amen. Until that glorious day when the trumpet sounds and those who believed and died will be raised and those still living will be called into the heavens. Do you honestly think that a God that could hold battle, that could send a Benjaminite boy out looking for donkeys and spark a dynasty that would be fulfilled a thousand years later, do you think that that God can't handle your problems? Do you think he can't figure out how to overcome your sin, your troubles, your pain, your past? Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, we have a powerful we have a God that has always been and always will be. And this is the hope that the Old Testament gives us. It's that hope that Paul wrote about in Romans 15.4. If you're here today and you find yourself without that hope, perhaps God has directed your steps into this humble little church. Amen. If that's you, don't waste it. God leaves the door open doesn't want robots. He wants loving children. I'm going to pray now. And we'll sing a closing song. As we're singing, I'll, I'll be up here. If you want to start your walk with Christ, if you want to make him your Lord and Savior today, if you want him to direct your steps, come on down. I'd love to share Jesus with you. If you want to come down here and pray, feel free. You want me to pray with you? Just grab me. But I will tell you, don't wait. Because someday it will be too late. Let's pray. God, you are a sovereign God. You are a holy God. Lord, if you weren't a good God, your sovereignty would be terrifying. If you weren't a God that... that did exactly what he said he was going to do, we should be terrified. But God, you keep your promises. You've kept your promises and you continue to keep them. Lord, we pray that, that we would understand your sovereignty, that we would understand that even when we look back at our past and we see that we've fallen down, Lord, you were there to direct us back to you. The older we get, the more that we can look back and see that. I pray that the, 
the young people here would see that, Lord, would understand that. That even if you fall, even if you fail, you are faithful and just, Lord. And, and we can turn back to you, and you will direct our steps, and you are with us every day. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, which does not change. We thank you for your promises, which do not change. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, we give you all the honor and all the glory. And everyone said,